0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, rural business owners face a different slate of challenges than their urban counterparts.
1: When you live out in rural anywhere, you don't have those incidental interactions.
2: Just ahead, we hear more about those challenges and a new online network that aims to connect rural businesses with more resources.
0: Plus, we speak with a pair of historians about the impact of telling stories from an outside perspective.
2: That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
0: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Over the last year of the pandemic, Colorado entrepreneurs have had to get creative to find ways to keep their businesses afloat. And business owners in rural areas have faced their own unique challenges. Through it all, an online network launched last year has been connecting rural entrepreneurs with business resources, fellow business owners, mentors, and funders.
2: To get a better sense of the challenges facing rural business owners and how this new network can provide the solutions for some of these challenges, we're joined by Elizabeth Philbrick, the co-founder of Esoterra Cider in Dolores, a small town in southwest Colorado, and Delaney Keating, the executive director of Startup Colorado, an outreach program at CU Boulder that created the network. Welcome to you both.
1: Hi, thank you so much for your time. Yes, hello.
2: So Delaney, let's start with you. I'm wondering if you can tell us from sort of your high level perspective, what are some of the challenges that rural entrepreneurs face in starting a business here in Colorado?
1: First and foremost, if we look at the value of something like the network and we talk about connecting people across the state, you know, we're serving towns that are 60 to 600 to 6,000 to 65,000. So there's a lot of variables in rural and so we're able to create density where it doesn't exist. In an urban environment, an entrepreneur has access to a lot more density at arm's reach. And so we're helping create that for them. But rural entrepreneurs, similar to entrepreneurs across the country, of course, struggle with things like access to capital. But largely, this is where we're taking the angles to help them with the base layer, which is getting to the the resources that they need.
2: Well, Elizabeth, I want to turn to you now. You actually opened a business, a public-facing cider house in Dolores, Colorado, last year. What kind of pros and cons were you weighing before you got into this, and how are things going?
1: Well, it's terrifying any time you open a public-facing business in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. So, um, yeah, Esoterra makes premium artisanal hard cider. So, think of it like a wine-tasting room. But... Very far out in the middle of Colorado, southwest sort of Highland desert area. We opened up in September 2019 after we spent several years in the making, only to be faced with an immediate, oh goodness, nobody's going out. We don't want to be a vector of of a virus for our community. What do we do now? we were in a situation where we needed to take the very extensive and thorough business model that we had written and delay it by an entire year and for anyone who's ever started a business you know that there's not a lot of leeway to actually delay anything so when we were facing this situation and not we weren't mature enough to be able to be beneficiaries of things like the ppp loan and that kind of thing that was very helpful for a lot of businesses Startups suffer from having no history. And so we had invested 90% of all of our funds in order just to open to the public. And now there was no public to open to. That's where Startup Colorado came in. They connected us with a huge network of people, not only people in marketing and advertising, but also people who were working in alternative forms of funding that could take all of the years of work that we had done but not necessarily had revenue, and help us turn around and leverage all of that work and be able to fund us and float us essentially for a year to be able to reopen this spring.
2: I'm curious what it feels like to be able to kind of tap into that network from a place like Dolores, which I think has a population under 1,000 or maybe close to 1,000. And you know, community support can go a long way when you're starting a business, but I imagine you kind of hit a dead end at some point in Dolores.
3: Well,
1: absolutely, when Delaney talks about density, what she's talking about is in a more informal way is you're sitting at a bar in Fort Collins and you can talk to the bartender who's also the owner and say, hey man, where did you get that bottle? Who distributes to you? Who distributes here? Can I jump on that distribution channel with you and split the shipping cost? When you live out in rural anywhere, you don't have those day-to-day incidental interactions. Tapping into a community that is 100% focused on one goal, which is to get entrepreneurs up off the ground, is a benefit not only for those of us who are in rural Colorado, but is also a really awesome benefit for those people who have very specialized skills who are in more dense areas that want to help, you know, rural areas. We are facing an interesting shift in our country right now, where a lot of you know, working people can now choose where they want to live. And so this is a real renaissance in entrepreneurship in rural areas. So the, those networks that Delaney is creating, is not only creating support for businesses like Esoterra Cider Works to get off the ground, but is allowing for a massive entrepreneurship revival in small town America.
2: Delaney Keating is the executive director of Startup Colorado. Elizabeth Philbrick is the co-founder of Esoterra Cider in Dolores. Thank you both for joining us. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much.
0: Aerial drones were originally built for the military, but over the past decade, both consumer and commercial use has exploded. Drones are now being used to fight fires, take pictures, and even deliver packages. And as KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, these unmanned vehicles have also entered the arena of electronic sports.
4: On a recent Saturday, Wings Over the Rockies' exploration of flight hosted an esport competition that's new to America. Students,
3: teachers and parents, welcome to the first academic drone soccer tournament in Colorado.
4: Four schools are competing in the U.S. drone soccer tournament. And as the large hall buzzes with pregame activities like labeling batteries and calibrating and testing drones, Westminster High School sophomore Kian Tran is already hyping up his nine person team. Today we're here to win, right? Right? So make sure you got your A game ready. The team is facing off against Colorado Springs Coronado High School in the first match. There are three three minute rounds.
3: All right, both teams
4: on your drones. Drone soccer is played indoors in an enclosed 10-by-10-by-20-foot netted arena. The players stand outside of it and pilot remote-controlled hobby quadcopters enclosed in protective plastic spheres, creating small soccer balls. Ready?
3: Three, two, one.
4: Each team has three players, one striker and two goalies. The goals are vertical hoops located on opposing ends of the court. A team scores one point when the striker flies their drone through the hoop. Experts say it looks a lot like the Quidditch game that originated in the Harry Potter books. For
0: one,
2: four,
4: four, the sport was introduced in South Korea in 2016 and has spread to other countries. In the U.S., drone soccer is both fun and educational. The week before the tournament, Cantran Tran is in a classroom at Westminster High School. He's rummaging through a plastic bin looking for screws to fix a drone. Here we are. Here's one of them. Just need one more now. He's in the aerospace engineering class, which is perfect because he loves solving problems. Oh, here's the other. Cool. Drone soccer is technically an after-school program here, but teacher Robbie Ferguson introduced it during his aerospace engineering class as an extension activity. He wanted to get the students excited about drones. I'm going to give you guys the flight log. The school purchased the U.S. Drone Soccer Curriculum, which provides equipment, training, and lesson plans. They are doing maintenance today. Because we've been flying these a little bit, and I've noticed a lot of the screws are missing. So let's go through, let's go ahead and maintain them, program them today, make sure you're filling out that flight log. The students will also build, operate, and learn how to fly them they practice coding as well by programming the drones using an open source software. They are fully customizable. If they've been flying for a while, they can actually
5: adjust the settings so that it's a lot more aggressive and they're, you know, a lot faster than the other ones.
3: But right now, since this is all brand new to all of them, we've kind of scaled it back. It's perfect for teaching because it takes robotics and moves it into a whole new dimension.
4: Major Kyle Sanders is a co-founder of U.S. Drone Soccer. This program is designed for 6th through 12th grade students.
3: The goal is to show them future career paths. If we can get them excited with the game, they're going to build and program the drones and not realize that those skills can immediately go into an aerospace career, that even in high school they can get paid to do this.
4: According to the Federal Aviation Administration, 16-year-olds can get a drone pilot certificate. Drone pilot jobs include filming video, surveying land, and search and rescue. And the average pay for a beginner pilot is almost $40 an hour. Sanders says U.S. Drone Soccer plans to make this a national program, but they're doing all the intensive focus testing
3: here first. Colorado is the home of so many aerospace companies and uh, such a, a presence for aerospace. Back at the competition,
4: the second round has started. Westminster swapped out players, and three new students are now manning the drones. This includes Can Tran, who is the striker. Their black and teal drones bob, weave, and quickly zip through the air. The defenders block the opposing striker, and Tran scores multiple times.
3: Is ahead by one.
4: When the round is over, they have the lead. What another good round? But in the third round, Westminster's drones have calibration issues, and the team ends up losing it and the match. But trans still had a great time and hopes to play again next school year. Wow, it was
2: incredible. I'm really nervous, but we were so close. But we all did really great,
4: especially for the amount of experience we've had. And teacher Robbie Ferguson echoes Tran's sentiments.
5: I'm super happy. We still did really wonderful. I'm proud of my kiddos.
4: The Westminster team went on to play two more games and finished the tournament in third
0: place. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. When you think about Colorado culture and history, what comes to mind? Skiing, ranching, gold rushing, mountain climbing, maybe legalized marijuana? Well, add pioneering medical services for transgender people to that list. Starting in 1969, Trinidad, a small city near the New Mexico border, was one of the few places in the world with a clinic providing gender confirmation surgery. Trinidad became so well-known for the procedure that going to Trinidad became a euphemism for gender confirmation surgery within parts of the trans community. Historian Martin Smith, who resides in Granby, borrowed that euphemism for the title of his latest book that delves into that particular pocket of Colorado history.
2: Since publishing the book, he has faced some criticism from the trans community over some of the stories that were included. And a few weeks ago, Martin spoke on the phone with Saleh hanbury Lizzie, a burgeoning historian and intern with History Colorado. She confronted him with some of those concerns, and the two had a constructive conversation. We've invited the two of them on to discuss Martin's book, The History of Trinidad and the Reaction from Some in the Trans Community. Martin Smith and Saleh hanbury Lizzie, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Martin, let's start with you in sort of broad strokes. Can you briefly
3: explain where the title of your book, Going to Trinidad, comes from? Between 1969 and 2010, um, Trinidad, Colorado, the small remote former mining town, was, was the sort of destination of choice for most transgender people seeking surgery. Um, the reason is that do- there was a doctor there, a surgeon named Stanley Biber, who uh, in 1969, began doing uh, specializing in in gender surgeries and there simply aren't that many surgeons who do these surgeries and they wherever they are located tends to be the destination for those seeking surgery.
2: What can you tell us about how Dr. Biber? in his clinic ended up in
3: Trinidad. Stanley Biber was a, uh, a surgeon in a MASH unit during the Korean War where he's, he got very good at doing the sort of micro surgeries involved with lower body extremity injuries. Uh, there were a lot of landmine injuries. After he got out of the army, he had an offer to work, open a clinic in Trinidad, Colorado for the United Mine Workers, which was setting up a clinic for its its workers at the Allen Mine down there. And uh, Dr. Biber signed on as the general surgeon for Trinidad. He was the only surgeon in town at the time. But in 1969, he was approached by a colleague who was a social worker. At the end of their session, she asked if, if Stanley Biber would be willing to do her surgery. And he said, sure, what do you got? He was a very sort of confident s- surgeon. And she said, well, I'm, I'm transsexual, which was the word she used at the time. And he did some research. He, he did enough research to think, well, yeah, I could do this kind of surgery. And that began a career. Word got around very quickly that he was not only a good surgeon, but uh, compassionate and nonjudgmental. And at a time when many of the university clinics were shutting down their gender clinics, Stanley Biber suddenly was the last man standing. He was the guy that everybody went to for many, many decades.
2: Can you give us a bit of trans history context here and and help us understand the significance of genital reassignment surgeries especially um as they were seen in 1969
5: it's definitely like hard to talk about since it's since it wasn't like a universal thing but uh in a lot of different places you did have groups of uh trans people chemical like what we think of today with like testosterone and estrogen uh, wasn't as common. I believe in the 1970s, 1980s, it started to come into a bit more prominent use. Quite a lot of work was being advanced in the um, struggle for LGBT rights by trans women, especially Black trans women at this time. But for the most part, gender surgery was is always a big step, especially genital reassignment surgery. So it wasn't that it wasn't common, it was just that it always takes uh, any trans person, I believe, a long time to like Come to this conclusion so i definitely wouldn't say that it's like the end of a transition but it certainly is a big part if that is what somebody wants everybody in the trans community their experience is different and so it's hard to say that this is the most common or this is the most common uh, especially when that it's their genitals they don't really want to talk about it with just anybody even among the community nobody's gonna try to ask you know have you gotten the surgery
3: yeah. And I would, I would build on that and say, you know, there's a misconception, particularly among those outside the LGBT community, uh, you know, people like me who grew up in a gender binary world that, that surgery is just somehow, you know, the the final stage of a transition. That's not the case at all. Um, you know, surgery, I think for, for most trans men and women, was one option but it's one of many many options back in in the 1960s late 60s and 70s when biber started doing his surgeries in trinidad um it was pretty uncommon and and like soleil said it was it was sort of done on the down low you had to know somebody who knew somebody who knew a doctor who could refer you um that's the case with claudine griggs who's one of the primary characters in in my book going to trinidad um she You know, her endocrinologist referred her to a a nun in Orange County, California, who said, you know, after some conversation, said, oh, I think you probably need to see Dr. Biber in Trinidad. You know, and that was that was the the way it was done back then.
2: So, Leigh, I understand that you have read Going to Trinidad and that as you read through, there were a few things about it that bothered you. In particular, the story of Walt Heyer, a somewhat notorious figure in the trans community who had the surgery with Dr. Biber, but later de-transitioned. Can you tell us about your concerns? Mm-hmm, certainly. I think my biggest
5: concern is just the inclusion of Walt Heyer. He um, has a very complicated life story, and we ultimately shouldn't shy away from people who de But what was mostly concerning is that he was uh, a part of a far-right-leaning, I would say, propaganda machine. My only concern is that using his story in the book, while detransition narratives are necessary for our community, people looking into him, he definitely has the potential to further radicalize people, even though I do think Martin does a good job at discrediting his ideas because gender by itself is uh, not so easily defined just by genitalia or voice or chromosomes. I wish there were what it may have been more of a breadth of people included personally of a trans person would have liked to see a bit more of the positive experiences
3: if if i could offer some perspective on that and and sule is right on on so many of the things she said claudine griggs is one of two patient characters that i focus on in the book her story really represents about 97 percent of trans experiences where surgery is chosen as an option and it's the right option and they're the, the person who chose that option has absolutely no regrets. It was the right choice for them. 97% is a pretty startlingly high figure. And I think we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. I included Walt Heyer in, in this in this book, um, not as a false equivalence, you know, here's one success story and one story that's not a success, but rather to include a point of view that represents three to four percent of experiences and to give some texture to the book. There were 6,000 people, who, more than 6,000 people, who made the journey to Trinidad for this surgery during that four-decade period. One of the early things I, I learned about trans men and women is that they're often reluctant to go back and revisit their lives before their transition. Claudine Griggs had written an extraordinary memoir called Passage Through Trinidad, in which she chronicled in real time her experience while undergoing surgery in Trinidad with Stanley Biber. Walt Heyer had done the same thing. And so as a historian and a journalist, I I had access through those two characters to get all of their contemporaneous experiences before, during, and after their, their time in Trinidad?
5: Nothing you said I would really disagree with, and I can understand that tra- not all trans people want to talk about their transition experience and even less want to talk about who the person was that they were uh, beforehand. I, I really don't want to put you on blast here, Martin. Um, yeah. I'm honestly very impressed with the book. It's just that history has not treated trans people fairly, and so it might be harder for cis historians to do this research and do these important pieces of like writing simply because that we don't always feel like we can trust the historical community, myself included. (laughs) I never want to say some cis historian will never be able to write a true trans history because I think that's just reductive and against the point of wider society's recognition of gender being a more complex thing. But it is especially important to recognize that if it's written by a cis historian, there's a good chance you are not getting the whole picture, and it is very incomplete. And so while I wouldn't say the book fails there, I would say it is sometimes a limitation.
3: And I, I accept that as, as a reality. You know, I, I went into this as a journalist. In Trinidad, I saw the opportunity to tell a story about real people in a real place at a really interesting period in our history that might be, a, you know, accessible to people like me who grew up in a gender binary world, who were kind of mystified by the whole transgender journey and, and the experience. And I think that was my intention was to, because of the climate that we're in, trans men and women being targeted and being demonized by people, policymakers and politicians. I think my point in in trying to make that book accessible to a wider audience was to make it impossible to caricature trans men and women.
5: I do have to say I do very much appreciate the fact that you were writing this book. Despite my quibbles, um, I think that it is incredibly important because no trans person transitions on a whim, and it's it's painstaking, and it takes time, and you second-guess yourself all the time, but it is one that ultimately you come to a very firm decision on. And the history of trans people is something that is intense and can be incredibly transforming to somebody's experience. Uh, I know for myself, it was. The trans experience, while it is an arduous one and oftentimes a bitter one, it is one that is ultimately overflowing with love for yourself and for others. I do appreciate that this work is being done. It has its faults, but it ultimately, to give a broader audience that isn't, you know, academia or our own community a wider understanding of what we have to go through is ultimately something that can only be good for us.
2: I maybe just want to end on uh, something that I think you were both getting at. You know, historically speaking, people who are disenfranchised often don't get to control their own stories. And it takes a lot of time often for history to kind of write its course and uh, eventually move into the space where disenfranchised people can start to tell their own stories. Um, where do you think we're at now in, in terms of trans history uh in that? Um I think Soleil, it's even interesting that there are more young trans historians than there were decades ago. And that's gotta that's gotta mean something.
5: It is always gonna be like a very hard thing for us to fully untangle because um transgender and intersex, while they have always existed, have become relatively recent words. Historians overall have wronged these marginalized communities. And as much as I am thankful that cis historians are showing it the, the proper respect it deserves, the only way we're going to get these stories is if our community can trust the historians doing it. And oftentimes the easiest way is to have uh, another trans person doing it.
2: Soleil hanbury Lizzie is a historian and intern at History Colorado. Martin Smith is a historian and author of the new book, Going to Trinidad. Saleh and Martin, thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, thank
3: you for leading us. Thanks, Henry. I appreciate it.
2: Since Dr. Biber's clinic closed in 2010, the Center of the Trans Community and Medical Care in Colorado has moved up to Denver, according to Sable Schultz, the Director of Transgender Services at the Center on Colfax, which is the largest LGBTQ community center in the Rocky Mountain region. And while Martin Smith's book, Going to Trinidad, is not a complete history of the trans experience in Colorado, researchers at the Center on Colfax are working on an extensive LGBTQ Colorado history project, and will hopefully have more to share about that important part of our state's history in the near future.
0: That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Erin O'Toole.
2: And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.